Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 901. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be here, share the word of God with you. As we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, this is an interesting topic that we've come upon today. Uh, it's, uh, I would say, uh, personally, it's a very difficult topic, not because it's mysterious or intellectually difficult to comprehend, um, but in other ways. Especially in recent history, the understanding of this passage and the like, meaning regarding women, have been challenged by many in the church. I initially wanted to preach this uh, passage, complete passage, meaning up to verse 16, just in one week, but I soon came to realize that there would be too many things I would be skipping over and even making assumptions on the knowledge and place you are all in, in th on this matter. So I've decided to split this passage into two. It's especially in passages like these that I am ever grateful for your prayers, for me as the preacher and teacher of this church, without which I am almost sure I would have fallen off somewhere in the distant past. You know, at first glance, when you read this passage, and we've been going through 1 Corinthians for many months now, when you read this passage at first glance, it may even seem out of place. Because what does this do? You know, what does this head covering thing and woman being, you know, the man being the head of the woman, Christ being the head of man, and all these things have to do with glorifying God? What does it have to do with using my freedom wisely? What does it have to do with not being idolatrous and etc.? Well, I believe it has everything to do with it. And as time go, goes on, and I see professing Christians and churches not heed the word of God in passages like this, I am certainly witnessing a furious descent from the church being a city on a hill to just people lurking in the shadows of the valley. And so it is out of grave concern I also say some of these things that I'm going to say to you this morning, 
On some matters, we may be so far off the mark that it's difficult to even call it hamartia, which means sin in Greek, because we don't just simply miss the mark. We shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, Congress recently passed a bill, um, the House, uh, called the Equality Act, and the title, A Most Egregious Misnomer. While claiming to be a proponent for equal rights for the LGBTQ+, what it does is punish those that will not conform to the modern-day secular understanding of sexual liberty. And I urge you to pray as Christians that this legislation will not pass. This so-called Equality Act would force people to violate their consciences if it would dare go against what is deemed to be now the new norm. A doctor being forced to treat a minor with hormone-blocking drugs when they know it will do long-term damage to this child is not equality. A ministry being forced to hire someone that holds beliefs that are directly contrary to what they believe is not equality. And so ever more speedily now, we are being psychologically cudgeled into making sure that we don't share our faith in our workplaces or even on the public square. And so why the rage? Why the rage? If we are supposedly the freest and richest nation to have ever existed in history, why are we as a society constantly outraged? The real question I believe we need to ask isn't why, but what? What are we raging against? Since the fall of humanity, the scriptures show us that we have been raging against God and his created order. Without order, there's only chaos. But there might be a response to that. That's too overly reductionist. Why does it have to be that particular order? You know, there's a children's toy where you put a ball in a circle hole, a cube in a square-shaped hole, a star in a star-shaped hole, etc. And these toys, at least the good ones, right, are made so that only one piece can fit a particular hole. It teaches babies many things as they grow. It teaches them eye-hand coordination, shape and object association, motor function, etc. But what would you do as a parent or a teacher if the baby took a shape and started to smash it into a hole it didn't fit in? You would gently stop the baby, I hope, I hope, so that the baby doesn't hurt themselves or destroy the toy. But what if the baby refuses to listen and continues to smash away? And what if the toy breaks and their hand starts to bleed, but they still won't stop? Who dictates order? What gives guidance to our conscience? How do we know where to point our moral compass? The world today has defined all these terms through the self-expressive lens. And what I mean by that is that in generations past, 
We were defined by outside sources. We live in a generation now that says our identity and our existence is defined internally and from within. Passages like today, and I will argue subsequently all of Scripture, will not make sense to those with this kind of ideology because if you feel bad, then it must be wrong. And by wrong, I mean untrue and false because you believe that truth starts with you. Even recently, even in the recent past, it used to be what you feel is truth and you can take it in and accept reject the rest. Whatever you feel is the truth, you can take in and reject the rest. That's the recent past. Now it has changed, you see. Now it has become what you feel is truth, and then, therefore, you must express outwardly, otherwise you are inauthentic. That means you are being false. And if you are being false, that means you are promoting falsities. So whatever you feel, you must express. That is the truth in today's society. This is not just postmodern or post-truth. It's post-post-truth. We see this expressed in social media. We see this expressed in our legislation. And now it has invaded even many churches. We would see things like This kind of attitude of, for goodness sake, don't even ever let anyone tell you that you can't do something or be whatever you want to be. Because if you go by this logic, then it's the same as denying your identity, which means you are denying your existence. So what are we raging against? Order. And in particular, God's order. Where do we find God's order? In the scriptures. So why should we care then? If a toy's purpose is to fit a star into a star-shaped hole, fulfilling that purpose would then bring the greatest satisfaction. For Christians, we understand that our purpose is to glorify God. God's glorification brings us the greatest satisfaction. And John Piper would even take it further to say that God's ultimate goal in the world, His glory, and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified in our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. Following God's law doesn't bring you into despair or despondency. It's not a demotion of freedom. It doesn't degrade your dignity. Rather, as the psalmist would say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You know, you ever love something or someone so much that you can't stop thinking about them? That's this psalmist with God's law. 
In fact, he wrote 176 verses and each verse describing why he loves God's law. Psalm 119 is definitively the longest chapter, meaning it has the most verses, the most words, most pages written on it, right? It's definitively the longest chapter in the Bible because he's not faking it. He really does love God's law. Now it doesn't mean that you may not struggle with some parts. When you get cut, uh, you don't sterilize and treat like the whole body, right? You treat the cut. And sterilizing the wound may cause discomfort and maybe some sharp pain. Uh, but it's necessary so you don't get an infection and endanger your whole body. Uh, after I shared that I fell down that hill, uh, when I went hiking once, I came home bloodied. Um, I asked my wife to take some alcohol, rubbing alcohol, and help me clean the wound. And man, that hurt, right? And she was yelling at me to go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. You have insurance. And she's very wise, wiser than me in many ways. But I insisted that I was fine, and please just help me clean the wound, right? And when she put that alcohol on the cotton swab and placed it on my wound, I let out this bellow. And I think I shook the neighbors upstairs. But in this passage or with this passage, you know, I don't know if it's going to hurt. Maybe, maybe not. But my job will be to distinguish what is cultural and what is divine order. And by divine order, I mean that God made it this way so that if you go against it, it's like fighting against gravity you're eventually going to come down. And before I continue, let me, why, let me tell you why I want to deal with this so very carefully. The roles between men and women have been a battleground for, well, ever since sin entered, ever since the fall. I believe that Satan has stirred up people now to a feverish pitch where even if you try to introduce the notion of roles, people want to block their ears and run out of the room screaming. But as we have studied the Bible for these many past years, God has a divine order for men and women. I gave a quick exegesis on this almost uh, two years ago on Genesis chapters 1 to 3. I can't believe it's already almost two years. It was, I titled it The Good Marriage Many of you may remember on May 19, 2019. Man, that's almost two years ago. Anyway, you could always, uh, you're welcome to check that out. Because a lot of what Paul is going to say on gender roles will point back to Genesis. These roles will manifest in your home and family, in the church, and it will manifest in society as a whole. In fact, it will manifest in every dimension of human life. This is foundational to our understanding of humans. No wonder then Paul goes right into this after he talks about giving glory to God in all that we do. And in particular, relationally. God has ordained it so that there be a manifestation of the design order that he created. Namely, authority and submission authority, and submission. And the basic pattern of God's design is men are given the position of authority and women are given the position of submission. 
now before some men perhaps may start to think that this is a position of boasting, I want to tell you about this case of a young man who was walking around touring the church. He came to the children's playroom uh, where a woman who happened to be a teacher for the children kindly asked him to take off his shoes, to which he responded, you can't tell me to do anything. You don't have authority over me. Let me tell you this. If this is what you think, there is no pastor, complimentary or not, that doesn't believe you should be seriously disciplined by the church. That's not what this means. The reason why it might look like I'm taking extra care is because the Bible shows that while women have the role to submit they are equal as far as being heirs with Christ. As far as being heirs with Christ is concerned, they are equal. So this is a passage about the subordination and equality of women. What I don't want to do here is give you my opinion, however. I want to give you God's authoritative statement on this subject. No one wants to hear my opinion, especially my wife probably. But I do want to give you what God has to say. On the subject. And what has happened now is that because these things have been difficult, instead of the church driving culture, the secular culture now drives many churches. So much so that you can't tell the difference between a corporate board or an elder board of a church. Maybe with the exception, it's just, you know, there's some prayers just uh, sprinkled in somewhere. Now, there are those that are in the camp that would call themselves egalitarian, meaning that there is only equality in Christ now. And they quote Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is no male or female. And didn't I just previously say that men and women are equal co-heirs of Christ together? So then they would postulate that there's no such thing as authority and submission between men and women in marriage, in the church, in work, and so on. Uh, in seminary, I read many uh, liberation theologians, uh, one of whose grandmother hated the Apostle Paul. And that shaped his ideology and essentially his theology. And he was one of the fathers of this liberation theology movement because Paul just sounds like a male chauvinist, someone who's promoting patriarchy. And people would even hypothesize that he must have had a bad relationship with his mother so that he didn't write divine truth when it comes to women. That's just his opinion. It's convenient and arbitrary. It's a conveniently arbitrary way of dismissing passages you don't like, though. Because if you could do that for this passage, you can do that for any passage. And now people do exactly that with the revolution of the LGBTQ movement. Fifty years ago, the largest Presbyterian denomination in America was debating on whether or not to ordain women pastors, women elders. One of the concerns brought up was the slippery slope argument. How do you know if you ordain women? So this is the slippery slope argument. How do you know that if you, if you 
ordained woman, you won't ordain a homosexual pastor next. To which one of the lead elders responded that you can't use a slippery slope argument here because it has no correlation and that will never happen. A few decades later, that very same person stood up and said in the assembly that you have to permit homosexual people as pastors because they already ordain women. Sometimes the slippery slope argument is the right one. And maybe someday in the future, people will actually see Paul for who he really is. That's my hope. A great emancipator and protector of women. While there is a divine distinction in roles, there is no distinction in dignity, spiritual capacity, intelligence, or the will. This was revolutionary at the time when he wrote it. Women are not inferior to men in their essence, personality, emotion, ability to think and reason, and so on. Subordination is not inferiority. But then you might say or ask, why does it feel that way then? Isn't it true in our society, if you tell someone they can't be or do something, that you are limiting that person's existence. But as we are learning, limiting your freedom to love God and to love the other, that's true freedom. In the end, what Paul is writing here, what Paul has written here that we have read today, is either scripture or it's not. We could either reject this whole passage and subsequently any other passage we feel like. But in our exegesis practices, I have said that we must, especially when we come to a difficult portion in the Bible, we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. We do not interpret Scripture primarily with our cultural lens, and we definitely don't do it with our feelings. We don't let the world interpret what the Scripture should say. Rather, we let Scripture dictate to us how the world should be. And in case you thought only Paul was a male chauvinist, or maybe you've read it somewhere, this is what Peter wrote in his letter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Likewise, meaning there is a passage before that Peter was talking about that we are to be subject to the authorities God has placed over us. And then he goes into chapter 3 saying, remember there were no chapter breaks in letters. This is a, this is a recent uh, invention that we have made, so it's easy to look up. Um, Peter was writing, he didn't write chapter 3. Next topic, he didn't do that. And so when he says likewise, he would have been referring back to his command, the imperative that we are to subject ourselves to other authorities, so wives also likewise subject yourselves to your own husbands. And this is in the family. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now here Paul is specifically talking about when the church comes together in assembly, such as like the meeting that you are in now. Women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. They are to learn in the church. It seems pretty straightforward. This, all these statements you know, seem pretty simple. Claire Smith, she wrote a book on this, and she recalled um, 
when a pastor friend went over First Timothy with a new Christian uh, a woman. She was from not the Western world. Uh, and so he was going over with this new Christian, First uh, Timothy. And when he got to Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he stopped. He stopped and he asked, is there anything he needs to clarify? To which this woman responded, no, it's, it's self-explanatory. He then asked, do you have any problems with what Paul is saying? And she replied, no, it's easy. Paul is saying women shouldn't teach in the church because that's the way God wants it. And some might say that it's because of her ethnic and cultural background. It may have been easier for her to understand the passage. But using that very same logic, you should be able to see why our cultural influences might hinder us from understanding as well. And in, some ca- in, in case someone thought that this was just predominantly cultural, Paul immediately from verse 12, goes to verse 13. And he says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's not cultural. That's the biblical order of creation. She was made to be a helper for Adam. And so Paul continues in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In the very least, one cannot claim that these verses are cultural. It's because of creation. It's the way God intended it. Even if I went further into 1 Corinthians to chapter 14, you would see this. As in all the churches of the saints. This is what Paul's writing. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now I'm going to clarify this a little bit here because we're not up to chapter 14 yet. This does not mean a woman can't say anything in the church. Obviously, that's not how we function. You see here, that's not how we do things here. They were clearly praying and prophesying in the church. All of Philip's daughters prophesied. But what is clear here is that women are not to take on the role of authoritative teacher in the church. And again, if you think Paul is just writing his opinion or is even an err, Look at what he writes in verse 37 of chapter 14. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Why do we take the scripture seriously? Because of this. Why should you expect your teachers then to teach this well? Because of this. Now, if you're a teacher of the church and cannot teach this, do not be a teacher. Liberal Christians will conveniently leave out these portions of Scripture in their teaching, and it will be to their detriment. Because the only way now to get rid of these passages, then, is to say that the Bible is not inspired. It cannot be trusted, and there has to be some kind of manipulation of the text to get to where you want it to go. And so now we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Apparently they weren't clear on this subject either. And there are studies that say that even Rome and in Corinth, there was a women's liberation movement or something going on of that sort. Women would dress up in armor, 
going around sticking pigs with spears to show that they could do what a man could do. And it's this spirit that Paul is addressing. And it's fascinating because out of all the things he said, there's only one time in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, that he's commended the Corinthians for something. They were getting all these things wrong, right? You, you've been with me for uh, 11 chapters now. They're getting all these things wrong. But in this, they were getting right at least. And what was it? And he says in verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. They remember him. They maintain the traditions. Paul delivered the traditions. That means he didn't create them. Traditions are teachings that are passed down. Traditions in this context, in the biblical context, like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, is about doctrine. He passed down the doctrine that he didn't make up, right? He doesn't have to straighten them out on what? On the deity of Christ. He doesn't have to straighten them out on the gospel of God or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They got these things right. So there are things that the Corinthian church was doing well, but, but, in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Here Paul lays out foundational understanding. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He writes it in such a way that, number one, this understanding circles back to God. This understanding circles back to God. Number two, there is order. Again, authority and submission all the way to God. Even Christ submits to God. And you might then ask, wait, isn't Christ God? And I would say yes, and that's exactly his point. Christ himself said this in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. On Mount Gethsemane, it's Jesus Christ who prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Christ says things, and he has said things like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That means this is what strengthened him when he was doing the will of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, says he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was his obedience to God's will that gave us the forgiveness of sins, that has given us new life as Christians. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, liberal scholars will say that the head doesn't mean authoritatively the head. You may have heard this, but it really means the source is what they might say. It just means source. Like Eve came out of Adam, so Adam was kind of like the source. Christ came from God, so God is the source. And this is what I want to call intellectual reaching. 
there is literally no other part of Scripture that could back this kind of interpretation. There are 75 occurrences of the word head in the New Testament, which is kephale, and almost every single time it just literally means the head, the head. And the times where it doesn't mean the head, it was translated to chief, like chief cornerstone. Secondly, they are claiming that Christ is created, then if God is the source, or are they claiming that God is the source because Christ came from God? And if that me- that's the case, then he was sent by God. And then wouldn't the sender be the one in authority? You want to take authority out of this passage when every other passage I've mentioned on this topic speaks on authority. Then guess what? Authority is also literally mentioned in verse 10 of this passage, to which many might respond, or some might respond, verse 10 is too obscure to understand, so they'll just out, flat out reject it. See, the mental and intellectual gymnastics you have to do to get to a place where you say God's word is truth except for this part. But if you read this verse also in light of Christ himself, what Christ has said himself, then you see that Christ was willingly submissive to the Father. And when you realize that God is the head of Christ and man is the head of his wife, you start seeing the kind of picture God has in mind for men and women. And I want to note again that this should also point out to us that women are not inferior to men, just as Christ is not inferior to God. That, that notion is just insane. Christ being inferior to God. That notion is insane. Therefore, if that's insane, you should think that women being inferior to men should be equally insane. This isn't about worth or dignity or even honor. It's about roles. And this is where we see that Christ was submissive to the Father. The church is submissive to Christ, and the woman is submissive to the man. That's the pattern laid out for us. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head because it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now this is the principle that we just talked about being applied, okay? The principle was laid out. The foundational truth was laid out. Now this is the application. If you're a man, and you pray or prophecy with your head covered, you dishonor yourself. If you're a woman, and you pray or prophesy with your head uncovered, you dishonor yourself. These are two parallel applications. Men, pray and prophesy with your head uncovered. Women, pray and prophesy with your head covered. Uh, This is why historically, Some women in churches have something called a prayer shawl. I don't know if you're familiar with that. In the earlier years, um, even in like up to, I think, the 90s, if you went to church back then, some of you were born in the 90s, and some of you were born later than that. But um, if you went even in the 90s, some woman would go to church with a hat on, right? Is that what Paul is saying, though? Are we all sinning right now for not following this rule and women not wearing a hat? No, that's not the point. But this application is set because of the culture that they were in. 
You know, Jewish men actually did cover their heads when they prayed. Uh, Orthodox Jews still do it today. Uh, they have a kippah, kippah or a yarmulke on at all times, right? Non-Orthodox Jews, when they don't have a kippah, would take their hand and place it over their head when they pray, right? When I went to Jerusalem and went to the Western uh, Temple Wall, uh, they required that I, as a man, would have a covering over my head to approach the wall so that they, they had these little, little paper kippahs, right, that I could put on my head as I approached the wall. And this is where I previously told the story of a missionary, right? They went to a place and they asked the other missionaries for the woman not to shave their legs when they came because in their culture, uh, only prostitutes shave their legs. So if you wanted to be a woman missionary to this place, they would kindly ask you not to shave your legs. What's the point? The point is there was a cultural sign that showed modesty and showed submission of a woman in Corinth. There was a cultural sign that showed the modesty and submission of a woman in Corinth, and that was to cover her head. And Paul is saying to maintain that cultural sign of submission then. It's a sign or symbol where people know, this is what it's saying, it's a sign or symbol where people know a woman is a woman and a man is a man. Now, I'm, I'll admit that today it's getting to be a little bit more difficult to figure out what's what in dress. But ultimately, what we are saying and what the Bible is saying is that our outer appearance must reflect our inner understanding of the Word of God. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, we bring shame to the one who has ordered creation. And are we not here to give Him glory? If you're not going to cover your head, might as well shave your head, is what he says. Now, there have been multiple historical speculations to why a woman should shave her head in Corinth in the ancient world. Uh, there are primarily two that I can think of, and both could be true. I suppose they're not mutually exclusive. First, prostitutes shave their head, and so when a man uh, saw a woman with their head shaved, he would immediately associate that with prostitution. Or secondly, uh, that woman's liberation movement I talked about women would there shave their head because they could also have short hair like a man to be equal with men. And that was the statement that they were making. In either case, whatever, whatever it is, what's clear, what's clear here is that in Corinth, a woman with a shaved head is shameful. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her let her cover her head. Bottom line. Bottom line is that God wants men to be men, women to be women. Bottom line is that God wants men to be men. And while expressions might be different culture to culture, the role of a man is clear. It's one of authority. God wants women to be women. And while the expressions might vary slightly from culture to culture, the role of a woman is clear. It's one of submission. That's the principle. This is what gives glory to God, and it should be especially displayed in our homes, in our churches, or wherever He sends us. Why? Because this is our act of worship to Him. We are here, and our purpose is to glorify Him and to worship Him, not to promote ourselves, 
not to become famous because we feel like we have talents that people need. It's to glorify him. It's to say he is our head. He is the best. And the way he orders, we will follow. And the way he orders things is so that we can flourish, that we can thrive. Because his glory is our benefit. And if I go all the way back to the beginning, him being glorified gives Christians the most joy. Therefore, if we are to have the most joy, God is to be glorified. And that's why we follow principles like this with joy and with one of great humility. Next week, I'm going to go into the part two of this, and we're going to see how Paul defends this principle using uh, Scripture and using Genesis and creation order. However, I don't want to end today without stating again the importance of our imperative. Our imperative is to glorify God. And that means that we go with creation order. There is incredible freedom in this. Um, if you do pre-marriage counseling with me, then I go over roles with each and every single couple. And it's not traditional roles, right? Um, you know, I don't have, uh, in particular, a traditional family with, like uh, roles with my wife. However, we do have God-ordained divine roles that we follow. And so that can play out differently. And I do want to explore that. And I do love the fact that our women in Edify also has this as their main vision statement and their imperatives that they will follow, the pillars of this ministry. I do honestly believe that without, I mean, honestly, without their uh, just support and prayer, I don't think I could even stand here to even preach something like this. But I do believe it's because God has in God has just given us so much grace in our church. He has given us so much understanding. That's something that maybe 10 years ago I would have been afraid to touch upon. He has given all of us boldness and courage to say God's way is the right way. It's really good. Let's follow it and let's show the world that his way really is the good way because he has showed it to us. Jesus Christ has come into this world and showed us exclusively what it means to follow God and be full of joy and that he can even say now if you follow me I want to give you the fullness and abundance of joy and so let's continue to follow and submit to God his teachings and his word as we follow Christ as his disciples let's pray God we thank you for this teaching um, honestly I don't know where everyone is here on this particular passage, I do believe perhaps because this has not been taught uh, in many of our churches when we were young, this may be even new. But Holy Spirit, we ask that you would strengthen us, comfort us, give us wisdom and understanding to love your holy word, to love your law, to follow it, and so that we can be obedient to your will, knowing that this glorifies you, this pleases you, and brings us the greatest satisfaction and joy. Help us not to fall in line with the world, but Lord, help us to set ourselves apart. Therefore, be holy, and therefore, proclaim to the world what it means to be a light and salt. Let's take this time to pray, 
And if there were difficult portions in this passage, I ask that you would just submit that to prayer to God. And perhaps this is an understanding that you've never heard before, a teaching that you've never heard before. I ask also that you would pray and lift that heart up to the Lord. Ask Him to give you comfort and peace as we go through passages like this in the near future. Let's pray.